our scripture passage once again as we come to uh, the preaching of the word is from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1. Actually, I'm going to read just through 7. Reading from the English Standard Version translation then. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Let's pray. God in heaven, almighty God, the God who is pleased to give us his word, both word incarnate and word inscripturated, that we might know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you have sent, and in knowing you, possess eternal life. For that we praise you this day. And we would ask that as we come to your word, your Holy Spirit would open up our ears to hear, open up our hearts and minds to fully receive, and enable our whole being to be committed to what is, in fact, our great purpose in life, here and forevermore. That we would live to glorify you we would live to enjoy you forevermore. And in living to glorify you, especially in our temporal bodies, in this life, in this pilgrimage, that we would seek to be everything that Christ wanted us to be. Uh, Not only those who worship you in spirit and in truth, but those who will be salt and light to this world and in particular to our own generation, in such a way that our lives would be conducted always hoping, always asking, always seeking opportunity to share words of everlasting life with those who don't know you. Give us hearts for a broken world. Let us live in such a way that we glorify you as we present your gospel to others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, during this week, I was um, on the Internet uh, Googling one topic because I was looking for an answer to a question I had. And as I'm uh, actually reading the page, that's giving me the answer that I'm requesting, and it is a religious news service page. I noticed over at the side, uh, the sidebar, uh, the right side column, And there was another article, an opinion piece, and I clicked on it. It was uh, rather interesting. It caught my attention because uh, verses 4 and 6 of 1 Timothy chapter 2, 
are cited, quoted, within this article. But here's the main idea that this article, a Baptist writer, was presenting. Heaven and hell theology isn't really biblical. But rather the Bible teaches that everyone will be saved. The conclusion of his article goes this way, quoting him exactly. The time has come for moderate and progressive mainline preachers to talk about the biblical vision of universal redemption. In essence, the position, the best message you can ever hear is this. Don't worry. Everybody's going to be saved. Now take careful note. This writer did not appeal to conservative, evangelical, and biblical preachers, but to mainline, moderate, progressive preachers. Uh, those preachers, I almost said those men, but now it includes an equal number of women, but those preachers who have belonged to those churches, which for the last 120 years at least have diluted and watered down every important biblical teaching that surrounds the gospel. Now, I want to point out what is an inescapable fact. If everyone is going to be saved in the end, then what are we going to do with the words of Jesus? For instance, Matthew 7, 13 and 14, Christ said this, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. For there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow, that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Later on in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him, meaning God, fear him, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. If everyone is going to be saved in the end, these words really become an empty concern. Because ultimately, whether you follow a narrow path or the broad path, you're going to be saved. You don't really have to fear that God will ever really destroy somebody's body and soul in hell. Now listen carefully. This teaching of universal redemption, this teaching that everybody is going to be saved, is not a new teaching. The devil's strategies, one way or another, have always targeted our moral and immoral behaviors and have always sought to declare this narrative. It doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter what you believe because God is love. God is full of grace. Every path and every road that you might take to find God or not find God, in the end, you're still going to be saved. Now, that's a good place to start by looking at this passage here. 
especially verses 3 through 7. Because I want you to notice that Paul is declaring that God has a real concern for the world that the world would be saved. This is a world where people actually need to be saved. They need to be saved. Why? Because they live under the judgment of God. That judgment that God is going to bring about at the end of the human the end of human history, that God described by Paul as he's proclaiming the gospel in Athens at the Areopagus, in which Paul says this, there is this day that God has fixed in which he will judge the world in righteousness, which is also the same word could be translated in justice, through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Because the world is under God's righteous judgment, the Apostle Paul in this chapter is calling upon the church to pray for all people, uh, all classes of people, all manner of people, all nationalities of people, all language groups of people, to pray for all people because God is a compassionate God with a compassionate desire to see all people, all manner of people, saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. In other words, the very foundation for prayer with respect to all sorts of people, all kinds of people, all manner of people everywhere, the foundation is the gospel, the gospel of God's grace in the work of his Son. The thrust of what Paul is saying here, verses 3 through 7, is what connects the church's responsibility and call to pray the gospel with the gospel message. We pray for the world. We pray for all manner of people because the gospel is the message that God has designed for all manner of people. God is a God who has a compassionate desire to save all manner of people. The church is to pray because the church is to pray for the salvation of all manner of people. Now, in verses 3 through 7, which we're specifically looking at this morning, uh, Paul is going to rehearse what we might call key elements of the gospel, key concepts, key ideas that we need to keep in mind, particularly as the focal point of what Paul says here is going to be the redemptive work of Christ. I want to break this down then into three what you might call gospel themes, three particular themes that we find presented to us in what Paul says here. The first would be this. Salvation begins in the one true God's desire or will. The word can be translated either way. His desire, his will. The gospel begins there. Uh, Secondly, salvation is accomplished by the one mediator that the one God has sent into the world. Thirdly, salvation is proclaimed by God's authority through the Apostle Paul, also through us. God's authority sanctions the preaching and proclamation of salvation by the gospel. 
So three ideas. Salvation begins in God. Salvation is accomplished by God's mediator, Jesus. And the proclamation of salvation is authoritated, authenticated and authoritatively ours to present because of God. God's authority stands behind the church's proclamation of the gospel. Now, with respect to this first point, let's expand it a little bit and state it this way based upon the whole passage. Salvation begins in the one God's desire to restore to his love and fellowship fallen human beings from all classes, all kinds, all nations, all languages of all people. Salvation begins in the one true God's desire, global desire, for salvation to see people of all manner of people saved. What God desires, I want you to know, without question, God will bring about. We know this because in the book of Revelation, we have prophetic insight into what heaven is going to look like and who is going to compose all those who are redeemed through Christ, but redeemed in accordance with the Father's desire to see all manner of people saved. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. Listen to these words. Read these words as the fruit of the Father's desire. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All manner of people, all nationalities, all ethnicities, all tribes, all language groups. God's global desire to see all manner of people saved is not a vain desire. It is a sovereign desire that will, in fact, be fulfilled. So back to what Paul says in this passage. Consider the connection in the text between the statement, God our Savior... And then the statement, a God who desires all people to be saved. And then his next statement, that there is one God. So let's put those three things together. First in verse 3, he says, God our Savior. Now this is a somewhat rare usage for the Apostle Paul, though he speaks of God our Savior in chapter 1, verse 1, when he opens up the epistle. Normally the concept of God our Savior is associated with the Son of God, with Christ, the one who comes into this world specifically to be the Savior. But he puts this at the beginning of the letter, and he puts it here to emphasize something. Uh, The emphasis is that God himself, the Father is himself as much the Savior as Christ is the Savior, and even as the Holy Spirit is the Savior, because the desire to save is equally, fully, infinitely shared by the Godhead, by God himself, his very nature as God. His very nature as God is to be a God who saves. And so here Paul is emphasizing God the Father. An eternal desire in the heart of God the Father, shared by the Son, shared by the Holy Spirit, to see that people 
are saved. Another implication connected to calling God our Father, the Savior, put it together with the statement, this God desires all people to be saved. Another implication is this. The Christian faith that has a God who can be called Savior and a God who expressly declares that he desires all people to be saved, that religion, the Christian faith, is unlike every other religion in the world because it's all the difference between salvation by grace flowing from the Father and salvation by works whereby we earn our own salvation. In the Christian faith, there is only one Savior, God. In every other religion and in every other faith, there are as many saviors as there are followers of those religions. We are saved either by grace, and it's all of God, or we are saved by our own efforts, and ultimately, it's all of us. That's the difference. But the truth that there is one God and one God only has several other ramifications. First, polytheism, the belief that there are many gods, wrong, just completely wrong. Uh, All of the religious beliefs and practices connected with polytheism, wrong, definitely wrong. If there is only one God, it logically follows that there can only be one true religion. If God alone is God, He is God, the creator of every human being. That means in the final analysis, there can only be one way of salvation. If there's only one God, there's only one true faith, there can be only one way of salvation. Now, you know the narrative today, and it's been this way for quite a while, in Western civilization, not, by the way, in Asia, But in Western civilization, as Christianity got diluted and diluted and diluted, the idea was expressed any number of times. There are many paths to God. Many paths to God. Let me say something about that. There are many, many, many paths to God. And those many paths to God wind up facing God as the judge. There is only one path to God that winds up facing God as the Savior. Ultimately, the destiny of every human being is to be before the sovereign creator of all the universe. Atheists will stand before God. Hinduists will stand before God. Muslims will stand before God. Not the God they think they believe in. Everyone will stand before. That's what the passage was in Acts that the Apostle Paul was proclaiming. God has appointed a day when everyone is going to appear before God for judgment. And so those who travel the many paths approach the broad way 
will stand before God and he will be their judge. And they will be condemned. It is only through the one way of Christ that God has given to be the mediator that there is going to be salvation. Now, this is motivation then to pray, to pray for everyone, to pray for all of those on whom the God of this world has blinded their minds. Because it's only by a sovereign work of God upon their hearts and lives and minds and thinking that they can be delivered out of the domain of darkness and then translated into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Now, not only then does God have this desire with respect to all people, with respect to salvation, God has accomplished the way of salvation. Salvation is accomplished by the one mediator. And what Paul presents here is that this one mediator is to be understood as both God and man. Specifically, then, in verses 5 and 6, Paul is going to present the person and work of Christ under the two ideas, mediator and ransom, respectively. So what is a mediator, first of all? Well, a mediator is a go-between. A mediator is someone who is a go-between with a purpose... <clears throat> of trying to reconcile those who are opposed to each other, to try to reconcile a relationship where there is conflict. That's what a mediator, that's, this, that's his purpose. That is what a mediator does. Uh, now, the good news of the gospel is that God has provided this mediator in Christ for the broken relationship that exists between God and human beings, between this fallen world, between God, and as Scripture would say, God and his enemies, God and a rebel world. Now, in every case, mediator implies the presence of conflict. The conflict, biblically, between God and us must be seen as moral rebellion. Human beings, by their very nature, are morally in rebellion against God. Now, often in human conflicts where there's a mediator, both sides have participated badly that caused the conflict. But in this case, God and God alone is the righteously offended party. And the other side, us, we are the offending party. God is righteous in his concerns against us. And we are unrighteous in our attitudes toward God. That's the conflict. How does this show up? Jesus taught that with respect to the moral depravity of human beings, the morally high point, the ultimate high point, the moral standard, that which all of us ought to properly obey, is stated this way. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And there is a second commandment, like unto the first, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Christ basically said there are two principles that are directly connected to the fact that there is the one God. 
Because there is the one God, every human being created by that one God is to love him supremely above everything else. And likewise, you are to love all of those that God has created to reflect his image. That is how you are to be. That is who you're supposed to be. That is how you're supposed to think and speak and behave. Everything about you ought to love God supremely. Everything about you ought to look at other human beings and care about them as much as you care about yourself. God is morally offended because we aren't that way. So every selfishness in us, every self-centeredness in us, every self-promotionalness that we display, every time we are that way, we are offending the majesty, the holiness, the goodness of God. And we're demonstrating that we are rebels against who God is and his moral authority over us. Every human being is on the deep side of being lost before God, apart from Christ, of course. So, every time we put ourselves first in any way at all, we have broken the supreme and ultimate law of love. Now, that's why we need a mediator. That's why we need everything that Christ has done. So Paul describes Christ as the mediator. Again, it makes sense. One mediator. If there's one true God, there's one true religious faith, there's going to be one true way of salvation, there's going to be one and only one mediator who's going to bring that to pass. We need no other. That's why Peter said in the book of Acts, there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. It's the name of Jesus. Paul goes further in how he references the mediator. He says, the mediator is the man, Christ Jesus. Why does Paul put the emphasis upon the fact that he's the man or the humanity of Christ? Why, why this particular emphasis? And it is emphatic. The way it's stated, it's clearly emphatic. Paul is drawing attention to the humanity, the incarnation, that Jesus is a man. Now notice, this is Jesus in heaven at the Father's right hand that Paul is making reference to. The man, Christ Jesus. That's where he is when Paul is talking and writing this letter. Well, here's some New Testament context that would be helpful. The early church prayed to Christ. The early church worshipped Christ. The early church called Jesus Lord. The earliest wrong ideas about Jesus downplayed or denied that Jesus was truly human. Are you following me? Because it was the universal practice of the church to speak about Jesus in the most exalted way, uh, to worship Christ, and you're only supposed to worship God alone, the early church 
consistently all the way through the New Testament was very clear that Jesus, the person of Jesus, lands on the side of God and Godness and divine. So that practice of the church led some people connected to the early church to have very wrong notions about Jesus, to the denial of the true humanity of Christ. So they said things, he only appears to have been a human being. He wasn't really a human being. He just looked like a human being to make God a little more accessible to us. He looked like it, but he wasn't really. So the emphasis here is upon the manhood of Christ. But there's a further reason, and it has to do with the nature of the necessity of the humanity of Christ for the sake of Jesus giving himself as the ransom. The work of Christ requires that Christ be fully human as well as fully divine. So when Paul refers to Christ as the mediator, um, he could have, though he doesn't, Paul could have likewise used the word priest. Biblically, every priest is a mediator. Now, not every mediator is a priest. But every priest necessarily is a mediator. Every priest in the Old Testament was a mediator between God and broken, sinful human beings. And there was a responsibility of the Old Testament priest to be involved in that process by which the offended God could be reconciled and pacified and appeased by virtue of the sacrificial system that God had instituted through Moses. With the basic line this, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. That premier truth pointing to the fact God can only be reconciled if the penalty, if justice and the just penalty is paid. Justice must be satisfied for God to be reconciled. And so this idea, which is so fully developed in the book of Hebrews, presents the fact that the one who's going to be the mediator, the one who's going to be the priest, must not only be a mediator between God and man, but he must have something to offer. Paul comes back to that when he says, Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. The work of Christ, the work of being a mediator, uh, properly summed up in this word, ransom. It might be a little bit difficult for you and I to define this off the top of our head, but in the biblical world it was well understood because in the Greco-Roman world, some 15% of the 60 million inhabitants of the Roman Empire, approximately 9 million people, were slaves. And the word ransom had a particular meaning toward the purchase price that is paid for a slave to be released from his slavery and set free. The appropriate use of that word, ransom, is connected to what Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 34 and 36, that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. What is our status as sinful human beings before redemption? We're slaves, enslaved 
to our fallen natures. Within a verse 36 of John, John chapter 8, Jesus says, But if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. You are free from the penalty of sin. And in an ever-growing way, you are free from the power of sin. Sin no longer is master over you because you're no longer under the law, but you are under grace. Christ is your master. You're set free from that slave enslavement to sin by the purchase price of the death of Christ in order to be made free to love and to serve God. That's what redemption is. Christ had to die. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Unless Jesus was truly man, then the proper offering could not have been made. Without the death of Christ, it would have been impossible for there to be a ransom. So, when Paul calls Jesus the ransom, he's only repeating what Christ himself had taught. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But it's also the fact that Christ is a man permanently. Paul doesn't enlarge upon that. It's, it's inferred in the fact that Christ, sitting at the Father's right hand now, uh, is going to continually make intercession for us. And he's been doing that for the past 2,000 years. What would change his manhood? What would change? Well, we could speculate, but the writer to Hebrews makes it very clear. The manhood of Christ never changes. How do we know that? Well, he cites the indestructible life of Christ as the reason for why Jesus makes continual intercession. And he says that that indestructible life is connected to something that David prophetically said about Jesus. You are a priest, not temporarily, not for a specific dispensation, not for a short period of time. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Whereas the priests had their priesthood temporarily because death prevented them from such, Christ's priesthood is forever because he has passed through death. He's been raised from the dead. He sits at the Father's right hand. The man Christ Jesus is there to intercede for us forever. It's a permanent intercession and a necessary intercession, as Paul would point to in Romans chapter 8. Who is there to condemn you? Paul begins by saying, first of all, Romans 8, 32-33, it is God who justifies you. Who is there to condemn you? It is Christ Jesus who died, who was raised again, who sits at the Father's right hand. Now notice, it's the humanity of Christ that dies. It's the humanity of Christ that was buried. It's the humanity of Christ that is raised to the Father's right hand. It's that humanity, the human nature that's present, 
when Christ makes continual intercession for us. See, apart from the human nature of Christ, uh, we could not be reconciled to the Father. And it is Christ in that human nature who sits at the Father's right hand who continues to make intercession for us. The divine person of Christ in and through his human nature. Our ransom, our high priest, our interceder for us. I'm going to have to um, quickly move to the last point. In verse 7. A third gospel element is might be phrased this way. Do you and I have the authority to really share the gospel with anyone and everyone? And what Paul says here, he says not only for his own sake, but for the sake of the church. He points out that he was appointed by God. In chapter 1, verse 1, it's actually called a commandment. By the command of God our Savior, he is an apostle. But here he says, look, I am appointed by God to be a preacher, which means a herald, one who proclaims, uh, and an apostle. And then he says, I'm telling you the truth, I'm not lying, which has the significance of an oath. I'm telling you the truth, I'm not lying, and a teacher to the Gentiles. God appointed him. God, what stands behind Paul's calling is the authority of God himself to proclaim the gospel. But it's the last thing that Paul says that ties all of this together, verses 1 through 7. It brings it back to the fact that all people ought to be prayed for because God desires all people to be saved. When Paul says, I, Paul, a Pharisee, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, of the tribe of of Benjamin, I, the Jewish man, Paul, I have been authorized by God to declare from a Jewish God, the Jewish Messiah, the Jewish way of salvation in the Jewish Messiah to Gentiles. You see, in the Jewish world, all people were divided into two groups and two groups only. There are the Jews, everybody else. And so what Paul is basically pointing out is that his own apostleship is living proof that the Jewish God has given his own son, the Jewish Messiah, as the Redeemer and Savior for the whole world. This is why you and I Pray. Pray for all sorts, all manner of people to be saved. There are great hints of this in the Old Testament. Great hints like Daniel chapter 4, which is the conversion story of Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel, appointed by God, to be a man deeply connected to and involved in the life of Nebuchadnezzar in incredible ways. But a Gentile king, one of the greatest kings in all of history, 
who puffed himself up in his pride and braggadocious ways against the God of heaven. Humbled. Deeply humbled. And brought to a point of confessing Christ. And ultimately we know it's Christ. Confessing the God who is the Savior, the God who is the Creator, the God who is the God of all people. Daniel surely prayed for Nebuchadnezzar's conversion. That's why the second part of this chapter says, pray for all people, kings and all those who are in authority, that we might live godly and dignified lives. So what is our encouragement? Pray. Do not be afraid to pray for presidents that we agree with, presidents we disagree with. Do not be afraid to pray for congresspeople that we agree with, congresspeople we disagree with. Do not be afraid to pray for neighbors who follow some weird religious faith or religious faith that deeply opposes the Christian faith or no faith at all in the deep opposition to the Christian faith. Pray. Pray for all. Because Christ is the only mediator between God and man. When we come to the table in a few moments, the gospel that the table presents is a gospel that is designed for all manner of sinful human beings. Praise God that we get to rehearse this and think about this. Praise God that we get to be encouraged again and again that this is a calling for us in life to share the words of everlasting life in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, thank you for Jesus. And we pray that we would love Jesus more and more and value what he's done for us more and more. That we might be more desirous of praying for others and speaking on behalf of Christ to others. That we might see more and more people be saved. Open our eyes to how broken this world is at the same time that the fields are ripe unto harvest. Lord, may we be faithful to be those who labor in your field. In Jesus' name, amen.